Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Is that pain just normal wear and tear? Does it involve more than one joint or is it on both sides of your body? This could be a warning sign of something worse. Let's talk about rheumatology tonight on Call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. Knowing when that ache is just a passing pain or if we need to seek additional care is important. That awareness can change the way it affects your lifestyle and well-being. First tonight, let's look at this week's Prairie Dot quiz question. True or false, physical therapy is ineffective in people with arthritis. Viewers who call in the correct answer will be entered into a drawing to win the signed copy of the book, The Picture of Health. Each of Dr. Holmes' essays, originally written for On Call with the Prairie Doc, comes with a wonderful accompanying photograph by Dr. Judith Peterson. We will announce the answer and the winner at the end of the show. Remember, you only have 10 minutes to get your answer in. We answer your questions about rheumatology as they are called in or sent to us via Facebook or email. Call in questions to 1-888-376-6225 or send us an email to the address on the screen. Joining us remotely via Zoom is Dr. Jennifer May, rheumatologist at Rapid City Medical Center. Welcome Dr. May and thanks for calling in tonight. Thanks for having me, my pleasure. Yeah, so um, you've been practicing rheumatology in Rapid City, you told me for 15 years now. I've gotten this question as I've done the radio show for, for um, this episode, and it's something that maybe didn't occur to me to ask, but what is rheumatology? You know, room is sort of an old root, Greek root, right? Or Latin, I'm not sure, but um, that goes way back. But tell me like how this field was born and, and what kind of things do you see and manage? I think rheumatology, at least the way we practice today has changed a lot, even in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, I think it evolved mainly from joint pain, swelling, inflammation, so rheumatism, mm -hmm. which people often understand as to being achy joints. But it's really evolved into a complement with um, immunology. Mm -hmm. So we've really begun to understand how some of these diseases, primarily what we call autoimmune diseases or problems where your body starts bothering you or attacking you. And in the case of joints causes joint swelling, stiffness, um, it may be associated with other organ systems like rashes and things like that. And so it's really evolved into a specialty mm -hmm. that tries to find the mechanism for whatever clinical manifestation you're having, whether it be joint swelling, rash, um, inflammation of the kidneys, inflammation of the lungs, sometimes they all go together. Yeah. And then trying to find a therapy or what chemical signal is kind of out of whack that we need to block or stop or inhibit. Mm -hmm. And so it's really kind of become a complement, I would say, 
to immunology. You actually have to know your immunology, which I don't think we really, well, we didn't, we've not learned so much about immunology in the last 20 years that it's really changed the specialty. Yeah. So modern rheumatology is not just joint pain, but a lot of what we think about with rheumatology, some of the more common diseases that our rheumatologists see do have to do with joint disease. And I think uh, the initial question um, that I think I always sort of am working on in my primary care office and certainly you are trying to make judgments about is what type of, what, what is it about certain joint pains that make you think more inflammatory or an autoimmune problem compared to the joint pains that you know, I tell patients, everyone, if you, you know, get the badge of honor of living long enough, are going to have some osteoarthritis, some wear and tear arthritis that causes joint pain. But what separates inflammatory arthritis and some of those special diseases from that type of arthritis? Right. So many times I will say to people, to the patient, it's irrelevant. They just know their joints hurt and they would just like somebody to help figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, but broadly, we say you have arthritis, which is pain in the joint. And then there's an inflammatory type of arthritis and non-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. And osteoarthritis or degenerative arthritis is going to be in that non-inflammatory category. When things are inflammatory, it means your immune system has been activated in some way and is sort of attacking or giving you problems in that joint. And there's going to be swelling, redness, heat, and there's going to be a distribution. It's not usually like one knee or one wrist typically. It's going to be more like bilateral, both hands and wrists or both feet. So there's uh, a distribution or a pattern. Mm -hmm. um, typically inflammatory joint pain or joint pain associated with autoimmune diseases is going to be pain that gets better with activity. Whereas mm -hmm. mechanical joint pain or osteoarthritis joint pain, typically you might be a little stiff when you get up, but you know, less than 30 minutes and then you get going and it gets better. And then maybe your knee starts talking to you or your low back starts giving you trouble and say, I'm gonna sit down and rest and it's relieved. Mm -hmm. Inflammatory arthritis is sort of the opposite. Mm -hmm. People feel better once they get going and it's when they stop that everything starts talking to them again. Yeah. Um, so there's profound morning stiffness, um, usually obvious swelling, and then that improvement with activity that's worse with rest. And then even on lab work, we can see evidence of inflammation or immune system activation. All of that points more towards an inflammatory arthritis mm -hmm. as opposed to a mechanical one, um, which is gonna usually be weight-bearing joints. So the location of the joint involvement yeah. also really tells us a lot about what's driving your symptoms. But at the end of the day, what I tell people is, I can give you all kinds of medicine to inhibit your immune system and your degenerative arthritis won't feel any different. Yeah. Inflammatory arthritis will improve. Mm -hmm. So um, I always say osteoarthritis won't kill you, but it'll drive you crazy. It is difficult to treat. It's painful. We're just mm -hmm. not as good at taking care of that really with good long-term effective therapies as we have to become with inflammatory arthritis. Yeah, good. And so we, we talked a little bit about, or you talked a little bit about things like lab workup that can be helpful. Sometimes imaging can be helpful, but not always early in the disease. Um, there we have, we'll get to some of our questions as we go along. One of the more common 
autoimmune diseases is rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and we have a question from a viewer about rheumatoid arthritis that um, they say it may actually be two different diseases or two subtypes. One type involves people with autoantibodies and another that don't have them. And what are your thoughts on this? And so you might see this term seropositive and seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. And what does that mean? And what are the antibodies that we're looking for in rheumatoid arthritis or um, you know, some of these lab findings that we might look for in rheumatologic disease? Yeah, so that's a great question and one that we're always trying to puzzle. So rheumatoid arthritis is probably the most well-known and well-defined inflammatory arthritis. And it's diagnosed clinically. I always tell people we treat the patient, not the blood test. So we examine you, we kind of mm -hmm. know what you have and the blood work helps better define your underlying problem. So if you have a clinical picture that supports rheumatoid arthritis, meaning inflammation and swelling of the small joints of the hands, wrists, feet, and ankles, that's rheumatoid arthritis on exam. When we look at the blood work, many people with rheumatoid arthritis have a blood test called rheumatoid factor, which is just an antibody in the blood that's present, and something called anti-CCP antibodies, these two blood tests that are just antibodies. When both are positive in the context of symptoms, there's, they're very suggestive of underlying mm -hmm. rheumatoid arthritis. It's kind of a slam dunk. Now, if you feel fine and somebody checked those, those blood tests, it would also suggest that you're very likely gonna get rheumatoid. So there's a, both a predictive quality and also helps us better define a well-defined group of patients. These are the patients that get in studies because they're easier to define. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to have erosive disease or more aggressive disease. Somebody who's seronegative could be the exact same person, but those blood tests are negative. It doesn't change how we treat them. And in all reality, it may be true that it's a totally different type of arthritis and we haven't found the right marker to define that person. And that's you know a great area of interest, but we treat that the same. We call it seronegative, meaning the blood tests are negative, but generally it's a better prognosis and you're many times considered to be less likely to have corrosive disease or damage to the joints. That does not always work out. I always tell people, people mm -hmm. don't always read the book and have problems right. this way. I have many seronegative arthritis patients who are very difficult to control and some seropositive patients who have had very mild disease and done very well. But generally speaking, it's a prognostic indicator if you have the blood test positive. And again, some people with seronegative disease it might go away, it might get better. It's less predictable what will happen to them mm. because they are a little bit less well-defined subset. Yeah, let's back up when it comes to blood tests and talk about um, more broad inflammatory markers. So this might be something that gets tested if you come in with suspicious joint pain um, as, as you know, you might say a screening test, though maybe that's not a great term to use, but we might do a C-reactive protein or a sedimentation rate as a marker of generalized inflammation to see how suspicious are we that this is an inflammatory problem. Can you talk about what those blood tests mean and do you find them useful, not useful? How do you use them? Yes, of course, as a rheumatologist, we order them all the time. Mm -hmm. We love them, um, <laughs> but they are, you know, what we call inflammatory markers and they represent what we call your acute phase response. So when the way your immune system works and how it gets going, your acute phase response is sort of that first reaction and the SED rate, we call that the ESR and the C-reactive protein or CRP 
are just measures of that acute phase response. They are very sensitive, meaning mm -hmm. very little can make them go up. Mm -hmm. So they're helpful when they're normal, right? Mm -hmm. If they're normal, it tells us your immune system is pretty quiet. Now in rheumatology, there are no rules and I have plenty of people who have been all hot and bothered with swollen joints and those markers don't go up for them. And that's a little bit of a puzzle, but generally normal inflammatory markers in the context of joint pain would be reassuring that the immune system would be fairly quiet. So we use them to monitor if you're, if there's active disease going on, or if say they're high, when I diagnose you, I might follow that mm -hmm. marker to see if I'm getting results or things are improving. So we use them as tools for, are you responding to treatment? And we use them as tools for diagnosis. And certainly your primary care doctor, you know, when those numbers are abnormal, it's gonna pique their interest. They might take it a step further and do an additional test. So they're mm -hmm. helpful tools, excuse me, tools in assessing your immune system activation. Yeah, great. Let's get to a viewer question. Um, a woman from Brookings emailed, how is the arthritis of Lyme disease treated? Yeah, that's a tricky one. So <laughs> traditionally, very classic Lyme arthritis would usually be in the early phase of, like if you get Lyme disease, you may get like a big swollen knee. It's very inflammatory, uh, might be treated with a local steroid injection. Obviously you're treating the Lyme disease as well. Right. And basically that usually will resolve. Mm -hmm. Some people down the road will get something called tertiary Lyme. So all of the infection is gone, mm -hmm. but they kind of have this just sense of malaise and achiness and it's not really inflammatory. So unfortunately it's very difficult to treat. It's more treated like nerve pain or mm -hmm. chronic joint pain, mm -hmm. kind of like osteoarthritis, mm -hmm. gentle use of anti-inflammatories, injections, topical rubs, sometimes nerve medicines, things that slow down the pain response to nerves, mm -hmm. but it, there's not like a biologic therapy or a medicine that addresses inflammation because it's really, that's gone. Mm -hmm. And now your central nervous system is sort of firing inappropriately. Right. And Lyme disease isn't something we see often in South Dakota, at least. It's far more endemic as you go east. So Wisconsin has a lot of Lyme disease. Minnesota certainly has more. But even in eastern South Dakota, we don't, we don't report a lot of cases every year. Yeah. Yeah, we're fortunate that way. We don't yeah. have endemic um, Lyme disease in West River. But, you know, people go to uh, northern Minnesota to travel and canoe. And so that's usually how yeah. our patients acquire it. Sure. 30 years ago, doctors thought that Ted Evans's pain might be from Lyme disease. It was ultimately diagnosed correctly as rheumatoid arthritis, and he began treatments that helped ease the pain and progression. I first really noticed it. My uh, feet started falling asleep when I was jogging. And I didn't think much of it out, much of it at the time, but then it started getting worse and Pretty soon it was to the point of painful. It was hard. I can remember crawling around doing some work because it was easier than standing on my feet was painful. I couldn't golf, which is my main pastime. Before I got diagnosed, it was pretty tough. At the time, a good friend of mine, Mark Amundsen, had some connections down in Sioux Falls and uh, got an appointment for me with a rheumatologist. You know, I was looking at three or four months wait and he got me in in less than a month and 
think we did a sed test and uh, confirmed it was rheumatoid arthritis and then we went from there. Now, 30 years down the road, I've switched from Enbrel because I've gone on Medicare and Medicare doesn't cover Enbrel very well, but they do carry other biologics. My rheumatologist tells me that most of my symptoms now are from bone loss from the rheumatoid arthritis over the last 30 years that I probably don't have many symptoms that are just from the rheumatoid arthritis. It's mostly from bone loss, ligament loss. And that's what I'm dealing with right now, pain-wise. So Ted is my dad, as you may have put together with the last name. Thanks, Dad, for helping with the show tonight. Um, I was pretty young when he was diagnosed, but he was really debilitated by his disease while he waited for a proper diagnosis. And then, um, you know, he if, if there was a good time to get rheumatoid arthritis, it was not a bad time at that point in time because it wasn't long before the biologic therapies came along, which were pretty life changing for him. Um, he was on some methotrexate for a time, but he's been on biologic therapy for a long time now. Um, can you talk a little bit about biologics, how they came to be. Um, they're used a lot, I'm sure, in your office now and how they've really changed management of not only RA, but other diseases. Yeah, so biologics, that's a broad category. Mm -hmm. And I'll just summarize it, and this is how I explain it to my patients, is basically we identified a chemical signal, like your white blood cells secrete little chemical signals. And we identified one that's very prevalent in rheumatoid arthritis, something called tumor necrosis factor or TNF. And someone had the bright idea to say, well, gosh, don't we wish our immune system would sort of block this? And said, well, why don't we design that? So mm -hmm. they engineered a mouse to make antibodies against human TNF, this chemical signal. And then you harvest that and you put it in a in a, a injection. Mm -hmm. It's too big to eat or swallow. You can't absorb it. So you take it as a shot and you're basically injecting antibodies or infusing antibodies in your dad's case. Mm -hmm. And then they just break down. They're not metabolized by your liver or your kidneys. They don't interact with any other medications. They're very well tolerated in general and they work very quickly. They're very effective and they have literally changed the face of rheumatology completely. Um, we're, you know, we talk about remission in rheumatoid arthritis. That is something we expect to do and we try to achieve minimal disease activity. And that's not something that happened, you know, before the late nineties. Yeah. So it's, they've been wonderful. They're generally just great medicines. Typically we start, we kind of add them in mm -hmm. if you don't respond to sort of simpler stuff first. Um, but they're, they're very commonly used and they're a major armamentarium for rheumatoid arthritis. We also use them for you know, lupus and systemic vasculitis, mm -hmm. and there's, you know, dozens of them. Right. But that's the basic premise is this antibody that blocks some signal and prevents that downward cascade of whatever the problem is, whatever inflammatory problems happen. Yeah. And decades ago, I imagine something that was used a lot more that we really try to not use today in these diseases is prednisone or steroids, which can be effective in treating these inflammatory arthritises, but have so many problems long-term. So how has that evolved? Well, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. prednisone is, you know, like 
the best thing ever if you're a rheumatologist. We, we, <laughs> we use more prednisone than anybody wants us to be using, but it works. Mm -hmm. um, but I always say it's a, it's a temporary fix. Yeah. It doesn't do as much um, long-term to prevent disease progression and stability. So we use it as a tool. It's a bridging gap, okay? You're really miserable when I see you today, like when your dad, if he came into the doctor mm -hmm. the first time, he's barely walking. Mm -hmm. You're gonna give him prednisone until you get something else to work, and then we wanna taper you off quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, lowest dose possible, preferably less than five milligrams a day. Mm -hmm. And I think back in the day, we used much higher doses, but steroids have lots of systemic side effects. They contribute to cataracts, they mm -hmm. thin your bones, you bruise more easily, contributes to weight gain. If you have diabetes, then it's a real mess. So I think we use them much less, and the, yeah. the culture in rheumatology is to continue to push for less and less use of steroids. Yeah, good. Let's get to some questions. We have a question about ankylosing spondylitis. So um, is there any correlation in either too little or too much physical activity in ankylosing spondylitis? Um, I wouldn't say that. I mean, mm. ankylosing spondylitis, um, for people who maybe don't know, is an inflammatory condition. You know, how rheumatoid affects your hands and your wrists spondylitis affects your back, your spine, and your sacroiliac joints, so those kind of SI joints. Um, active, they feel better when they're active, typical mm -hmm. inflammatory process, the more you do, the better you feel. Um, and I wouldn't really restrict activity. Now, say down mm -hmm. the road, you have fused, or you've got uh, a really fused spine, and you're older, you can get actually little fractures of those areas because you've lost that mobility in the spine. So you might mm -hmm. be, want to be cautious if you have a lot of fusion, mm -hmm. but beyond that, no. I mean, again, we try to treat the disease aggressively and most people just go about their day yeah. and are as active as possible. And I think that touches on an important point that again is maybe different now since we have better therapies than we did decades ago in that it's important to make the right diagnosis because if you can treat these diseases, it prevents those long-term joint function problems, the fusion and the erosions and, and the, the chronic problems because you're protecting the joints long-term, right? Correct, yeah. 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 Um, we had another question about ankylosing spondylitis. Um, a caller with a form of that disease, ankylosing spondylitis, has been prescribed meloxicam for eight years and is now considering Humira, which is a biologic agent, or other medications to help. Um, they had one physician who didn't necessarily think switching medicines during a pandemic was the best idea. Do you think the caller should feel safe switching medicine and which would the, the Prairie Doc physicians? And sometimes sometimes these specific questions are hard to answer when you haven't met or seen the patient, but but what kind of, I mean, Humira is certainly within the scope of what you use for ankylosing spondylitis, right? Absolutely, mm -hmm. and ankylosing spondylitis is one of the, as a rheumatologist, is one of the most fun things to treat because they are the kind of people that are uncomfortable and you give them a biologic, they really respond well to biologic therapy and their life changes. So they, mm -hmm. it's very effective. But the first line therapy often is an anti-inflammatory mm -hmm. and sometimes that works really well for people. They just respond really well to an NSAID. Mm -hmm. And if that's been this person's situation, that's fine. So switching is really related to pain and discomfort and function. Mm -hmm. And we have this conversation not infrequently in our clinic, like is it time to add a biologic in the context of a pandemic? This pandemic is not going anywhere fast. So right. it's not like in three months from now, this answer is gonna be a whole lot better. Mm -hmm. um, so typically we just talk about risks and benefits. How uncomfortable are you? You know, is it 
affecting your sleep, your quality of life, your function, um, you can always quit it. So um, I sometimes say, let's go ahead and start it. Let's see what kind of response you get. And if you're like, wow, this is amazing, then mm. there's a value there. Right. Um, as opposed to, I didn't really see a lot of difference. And you might say, okay, let's just stop for now, reevaluate later. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, unfortunately, with spondylitis, you start with an anti-inflammatory, like an ibuprofen type medicine, and then you just jump way ahead to a biologic. And that's kind of a big leap for a lot of people. Sure. Um, so it's it's a really tough. It really is a kind of a one-on-one -on -one decision between you and mm -hmm. your provider and what you're comfortable with. If you don't have a lot of other comorbidities, yeah, you don't have lung disease or you don't get infections a lot, I might be more comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, because I use these meds all the time, I tend to be more comfortable using them mm -hmm. in general. And so I might encourage you just because I've seen such benefit with sure. it. But everyone's different. So it really becomes a right. personal decision. But it's reasonable to consider regardless. Yeah. Good. A caller from Lake Andes asked about tips on dealing with Sjogren's syndrome. So what is Sjogren's syndrome? How do we treat that? And, and what, what challenges do those patients tend to have? Yeah, Sjogren's is really challenging. So mm -hmm. it falls under the umbrella of what we call connective tissue disease, which is kind of a terrible name, but it's the name we came up with <laughs> however many millions of years ago. And under that umbrella of diseases, lupus would be the most common one that people are familiar with. But Sjogren's is like a kissing cousin to lupus. Mm -hmm. And all it means is in that type of disorder, the immune system predominantly has attacked the glands usually of the eyes or the salivary glands. And so dry eyes and dry mouth, like really dry eyes and dry mouth are a predominant feature mm -hmm. of that disorder. And then we check some other labs and there may be some other things like Raynaud's or fingers that turn white and blue in cold weather. Fatigue is profound in people with Sjogren's, universally mm -hmm. common, very difficult to treat. And then people are often just achy. So in terms of treatment, if you primarily just have the dry eyes and dry mouth, which many people do, and they really don't have any, what we call major organ involvement, their heart, their lungs, their kidneys, all of that is what good, then it's conservative care. It's eye drops and mm -hmm. biotin and mouth care and frequent dental visits and lotion. And if those things fail, sometimes we do the, um, like EvoSac, the mm -hmm. Cialgins, the things that kind of make you salivate. Mm -hmm. And some people like those, some people don't, but we'll try those. Uh, so that's probably where to start, um, but it's very challenging, Sjogren's. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's uncomfortable. And sometimes it's hard, especially in older patients to diagnose because so many medicines that we prescribe for other reasons can cause dry mouth. It's hard to know, you know, when to be suspicious about that in, in some populations of patients too, I find. Very true. Yeah. Um, let's see. A caller from Kadoka asked if rheumatoid arthritis can spread through the entire body or if it tends to stay in one place. So again, rheumatoid arthritis is really defined by distribution. Mm -hmm. So it's usually going to be bilateral and it'll be, um, I always say it's the row, not the ray. Okay. So it's usually your knuckles, mm -hmm. your wrists, elbows, um, ankles mm -hmm. and then the toes in the similar distribution. That's going to be primarily where you get rheumatoid. It can certainly, in some people, bother their knees, um, hips, and shoulders, but generally speaking, that's where you're going to see it. Mm -hmm. And usually, it kind of wherever you flared up in to begin with, that's kind of where it lives most of the time. 
It's not to say that it can't move around, but it doesn't, for example, ever affect your back. Sure. Right. And again, shoulders, it's a little more achy, usually not so much uh, actual inflammation of the joint. So mm -hmm. I would say for the most part, it stays put and usually in the small joints, peripheral joints. Mm -hmm. We had a question, what percentage of people with psoriasis will get psoriatic arthritis? That's a good one. Mm -hmm. You know, that number keeps moving. Um, kind of the more sensitive we've become to understanding this, um, that number just keeps going up. And I can't quote you an exact number, but I would say maybe 25%. And I suspect it's actually higher than that. Mm. Um, but that's sort of a conservative estimate of 25% of people with psoriasis will have psoriatic arthritis. And do most uh, of we those? have regular referrals from our dermatologists sure. because they've gotten really good about asking about joint symptoms mm -hmm. because it's just kind of really been um, encouraged by them in their college. So we're really starting to pick more and more of these patients up. We're being better about treating psoriasis. Mm -hmm. So they're using biologics that we talked about for psoriasis. Right. And then people are like, wow, you know, my joints were better. I didn't even really realize until after I got my skin better how much my joints were a problem. So. Mm -hmm. I think it's more than that, but that's a good estimate. Yeah. And are there certain joints or joint types that psoriatic arthritis tends to affect more than others? Yeah. So psoriasis is, is fascinating and psoriatic arthritis is fascinating. It, it can have several presentations. So it may have a, there's about five different ways psoriatic arthritis will present. It might just be a big swollen knee, usually what we call asymmetric or not the same side, large lower extremity joints. It can affect like a pattern, just like rheumatoid arthritis. It has a pattern where it just affects these knuckles way out here. We call your distal interphalangeal joints, which are always spared by rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. Those can be really, really terrible and have mm -hmm. nail changes. Um, it can be the spine we talked about, that mm -hmm. spondylitis. It can be that kind of inflammation in people with psoriasis. So there's lots of presentations um, and you just kind of got to figure each person out not necessarily a, a single typical right. patient presentation for that type of arthritis. Mm -hmm. A gentleman from Sioux Falls called and asked about medicinal effects of CBD oil and if there are serious side effects using the oil to fight arthritis. Is there research going on in rheumatology and CBD oil? Well, I would say not CBD oil specifically, but the cannabinoid receptors, which mm -hmm. do have some data that manipulating them or, or affecting them would help with joint pain and symptoms associated with inflammatory conditions and musculoskeletal pain. Unfortunately, I would say to date, we don't really have like a randomized double bind placebo controlled trial that's really tested these. Most of the reports are sort of anecdotal or a mm -hmm. few cases. And so it's really unclear. We don't know what dose, how to give it, um, yeah. Is it better in a cream? Is it better as a pill? Which receptors are best managed? And so at this time, you know, we certainly, our patients are using it. Right. And anecdotally, we're getting reports from patients that, um, oh, I think this was helpful, but I'm also getting a report that, that it's making no difference. So mm -hmm. it's really hard to say. Um, I think we're learning and we, we have to really get some better studies to tell us what exactly is the right thing for someone to take because right now the products are just diffuse mm -hmm. and you can't know what one person's taking from the next in terms of dose um, strength um, source etc so it's really it's really challenging right yeah. now to give good advice to patients on that yeah i agree with that 
Um, a woman from Sioux Falls is wondering if her celiac disease is affecting her rheumatoid arthritis or joints. Is there any association there? And she always also wonders about fibromyalgia relation to rheumatoid arthritis. And that's maybe a, yeah. a larger box of worms that <laughs> so we want to tackle. So there's basically three yeah. <laughs> different things going on there. Um, certainly celiac patients do get joint pain. And so when people come in with joint pain, kind of fibromyalgia-y joint pain, where they just kind of ache we don't see a lot of swelling or inflammation when we touch their joints or feel their joints, but they're just achy. Um, we look, we work up celiac. Celiac is something we definitely want to exclude. So controlling your celiac disease is a good start. Um, it, I wouldn't say it makes rheumatoid arthritis worse. That's sort of a separate issue altogether. I would say the other thing happens, people get labeled as rheumatoid, then we find out they have celiac, we control their celiac and their rheumatoid gets better. That happens. Hmm. Um, fibromyalgia is, of course, a totally different animal. It is really kind of nerve pain. So it's a central nervous system problem. It has nothing to do with inflammation. So, uh, but it lives many times with lots of these diseases. Mm -hmm. It's very common in the general population, but certainly patients with rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, they may have fibromyalgia a little bit more often than the general population. So it's balancing both. They're, they're sort of separate problems managed differently and both can occur together. Good. One treatment for joint pain that doesn't require taking a pill or getting a shot is physical therapy. Osteoarthritis is the most common type of arthritis and you can think of that as kind of the wear and tear arthritis. Maybe someone's knee wears out and they need to have a knee joint replaced. So we see that type of arthritis in joints all over the body. Rheumatoid arthritis acts differently than osteoarthritis and we see it attack both the left and right side at the same time. For example, a person with osteoarthritis may say, oh, my right foot hurts from an old sports injury, but maybe a person with rheumatoid arthritis would describe both feet hurting, left and right hurting at the same time. The two things that physical therapy can help with a person in that, with that type of condition is, number one, exercise will keep the joints moving. One of the unfortunate things is as time progresses and the joint degrades, it'll become less flexible, less movable, so we want to have a person be able to keep moving and keep what we call their range of motion available. But the key is, like, as a therapist, I teach a person just to be gentle. Don't, like, mm. you know, when you squeeze it, it creates more damage to that joint but you can strengthen it without causing more joint damage. Well, my second piece of advice is find some type of activity that you enjoy that's lower impact. Maybe you like to be in the pool and or maybe you like to do some light walking, but I wouldn't recommend a hard impact type things like running and such. I would recommend a person maybe chooses something like bicycling or something that they feel comfortable with and they enjoy. So biologics have changed uh, what I see as a therapist immensely. For example, as a certified hand therapist, 20-some uh, years ago, I'd see a patient who had to have uh, quite a bit of arthritis in the knuckles of their hand here to the point where the joints degenerated, where a, a physician needs to go in and do joint replacements. After that type of joint replacements, as a hand therapist, I have to create a splint. We do some specific exercises. Um, but with the advent of the biologics, we're not seeing these type of degeneration of these joints and subsequently I'm not seeing that surgery as frequent as I did in the past. And so it's definitely changed 
how I, what kind of patients I see. A good reminder that activity is good no matter your problem. So Dr. May, we've got a few minutes to address a load of questions, so we're gonna do a little rapid fire here, all right? Okay. Um, a man in his 60s has high uh, rheumatoid factor and CCP antibody numbers. He says if he can tolerate the joint discomfort, should he avoid methotrexate and other RA drugs, or is there a good reason to take it even despite the discomfort factor? Yeah, he should be treated. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> that would be my rapid fire Prevention answer. of joint damage, and right? What, there are definitely, there's systemic features. So yeah. inflammation is not just in the joints. This is all over. People mm -hmm. have, uh, people with rheumatoid arthritis are at increased risk of heart attack and stroke. And that's related to this systemic inflammation. And treating those rheumatoid arthritis mm -hmm. will help reduce that. Also bone loss, just having that chronic yes. systemic inflammation contributes to osteoporosis and thinning of the bones. And if he has those antibodies positive, he's more at risk of having destructive changes to his joints, kind of like what your dad reported. Mm -hmm. And once that happens, we can't undo that. Mm -hmm. And so it's absolutely worth being treated. The treatment, the risks associated with treatment are much less than the risks of not being treated. Good. Um, a woman asked about how you diagnose lupus, and we already touched on this, but is it related to fibromyalgia? So let's have a brief spiel about your lupus. Big topic. Yeah, so <laughs> lupus is um, basically an autoimmune disease mm -hmm. that has a certain kind of antibody profile, so weird blood tests that we do, but it's really defined by the numbers of organs that are involved. And so these, you have organ damage. It's not just joint pain. In fact, joint pain, I would say is a small part of most lupus patients. It's almost like a afterthought. It's rashes, uh, inflammation of the heart, inflammation of the lung, inflammation of the kidneys, very abnormal lab work, low white counts. There's all kinds of stuff out of whack. So lupus is, um, just very organ specific. Whereas certainly people with lupus can have fibromyalgia symptoms and be very achy and hurt all over. But like we talked about, those things kind of run in parallel, but they're not related. So treating lupus may not make your fibromyalgia any better mm -hmm. and vice versa. Got it. I've had a couple questions about meloxicam, which is an anti-inflammatory, kind of a cousin to ibuprofen. Um, we've had questions about what are the side effects of meloxicam and if there are good alternatives to meloxicam in treating arthritis, which I assume means osteoarthritis. So what, what choices do we have in that type of treatment? Yeah, so meloxicam would be kind of one that, it's like an ibuprofen type product, mm -hmm. and they're all in that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory category. They all can irritate your tummy and irritate your kidneys, and you, depending on your age, they may not be a good choice for you. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, for degenerative arthritis, we've really learned that they're maybe not so great for that. Now, if you take it and it's working for you, so be it. Uh, you have to be monitored and make sure that's not causing you harm. Uh, Tylenol is another alternative or acetaminophen. Again, that's so-so, but if it works for you, feel free. Um, but for osteoarthritis, what we've really found is strengthening. Our physical therapy mm -hmm. presentation there was a good example. So we need to exercise, keep our body mass index, so our weight under better control, eat right, quality rest, strengthen our joints and avoid a lot of recurrent trauma to the joints. And sometimes with those conservative measures, sometimes joint injections, sometimes splinting, topical rubs, all of that together 
we can kind of get through those degenerative arthritis flares and reduce the rate at which we need to have joint replacement, which is sort of like the palliative care of osteoarthritis. Good. We had a caller um, who takes methotrexate, um, I, I believe prednisone and hydroxychloroquine to battle his arthritis. So presumably rheumatoid arthritis, so I'm not certain. He's wondering if it would be safe to take Viagra with those medications. Yeah, I think it would be. I mean, yeah. if it's safe for you to take Viagra in general, you should be able to take it with those medicines. Yeah. Yep. And hydroxychloroquine is an interesting topic because we've had so much news on it, right? Did you have any patients right. that were affected in their ability to get that, their chronic hydroxychloroquine when, when there was a lot of hype about this in the spring? Well, we've been having difficulty getting Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine mm -hmm. for years, and the cost of it has gone up immeasurably. And this was well before COVID. Mm. Um, I was actually hopeful that when we got all this Plaquenil brought into the country and then it didn't really pan out to be helpful for COVID, that it would then bring the price down because we have it available. But it's still very expensive. And we do have patients that are having difficulty getting it for whatever reason. But it's okay. very useful. Plaquenil is like the aspirin for lupus. So yeah. particularly for our lupus patients, Plaquenil is a yeah. very, very important therapeutic piece. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's been a challenge. Yeah. A caller from Brookings wonders how effective physical therapy would be for arthritis in the joints, in the wrist joints, excuse me. Well, I think it depends on yeah. the mechanism or the problem. Mm -hmm. Certainly physical therapy is always a great tool. Mm -hmm. If we're not quite sure what's maybe making your pain worse, a good therapist can often tell us, you know, yeah, this is mechanical or no, we need some more imaging or this isn't responding to physical therapy. So it's certainly worth doing. Um, we do it for carpal tunnel. We sometimes send our rheumatoid arthritis patients to, we call for joint protection principles and strengthening. And all those things are good tools. It kind of just depends on, you know, what the mechanism mm -hmm. is for your wrist pain. If it's inflamed, then I would treat that first and right. then see how the pain responds and then go from there. Good. We had a caller who wanted to know if COVID is worse in people with arthritis, or has there been any, any data on COVID in people with autoimmune disease, COVID in people who are using biologic agents? Is that something that you're getting any data about? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously very early on mm -hmm. to know for sure. There is a arthritis registry. So um, if our patients get COVID, we submit the data to this registry and they've been collecting you know, this data going forward. Up to now, and this is all I can, you know, again, it's anecdotal, I wouldn't hang my hat on it, but we are not seeing our patients getting sick more often or more severely than others with COVID. So still high blood pressure, obesity, um, diabetes are still much more serious risk factors than being on these medicines. Um, and sometimes our medicines have been helpful in the context of these cytokine storms and so it's a little unclear mm -hmm. um but we've been fortunate at least to not see uh, you know a clear worsening of our patients compared to the general population that's getting COVID. good um, a caller from sioux falls wants to know your view of using tricyclic antidepressants to aid in patients with arthritis or if, if sleep is a problem because of that arthritic pain yeah we use them all the time so Me very too. low doses of what we call tricyclic antidepressants uh, amitriptyline is probably the most common one, mm -hmm. um, but again, just little itty bitty doses, not doses that, that would have been used to treat depression back in the day. Um, we use them a little bit at night. They're 
help people get quality rest because in order to feel good, as we mm -hmm. know, sleep is very important and quality rest is very important. Mm -hmm. So being able to get quality rest, uh, we use that little bit of amitriptyline and people usually um, report significant relief. It just elevates norepinephrine a smidge. And it mm -hmm. also is really helpful for some of our fibromyalgia patients. Yeah, I, I find it very useful in people with known nerve pain, fibromyalgia, or sort of mm -hmm. more chronic pain in general and fairly safe compared to some yes. other modalities. Good. Um, a Facebook user who has amniotic band syndrome in one of her hands and arthritis in her fingers wonders if there are medicines besides the meloxicam that she uses to help with the pain. Oh, that's a tough one. Pretty specific. Um, yeah. I'm not very familiar with the long-term effects of that. I'm assuming it's mostly mechanical. Mm -hmm. um, and so unfortunately, it's kind of the same description we would use for osteoarthritis. Mm -hmm. So there's many different types of anti-inflammatories beyond meloxicam, and sometimes just switching one is helpful for not always mm -hmm. clear reasons. Um, but a topical analgesic, like yeah. a Voltaren gel, something that's got anti-inflammatory in it, might provide some relief um, and mm -hmm. injections. Kind of just depends on what the mechanism of the the pain is, but mm -hmm. if there's something kind of local, like whether it's tendon or ligament that you could inject might be effective. Good. Um, a caller from Sioux Falls, we've talked about this drug a few times, wants to know the side effects of meloxicam. So what are the major side effects of anti-inflammatories in general that we think about when we're prescribing these or not? Right. Mm -hmm. So I always, these are just like the ibuprofen products. They can all you know, irritate your tummy and contribute to tummy ulcers or mm -hmm. bleeding, and they can potentially irritate your kidneys, cause mm -hmm. a little um, worsening of your kidney function. So I always tell people to take the medicine with plenty of food and be well hydrated. Drink a full glass of water when you take it. And we periodically, for my patients, if we're doing decent doses, and if you're older, particularly if you're older 65, we will check your hemoglobin and some liver and kidney functions twice a year. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you have any signs of bleeding or um, abdominal pain or something like that, we're going to stop the medicine. Mm -hmm. So that's the main issues. All of the NSAIDs, we call them, or, or the mm -hmm. non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs may also potentially increase risks of cardiovascular events. So you just got to weigh the pros and cons. This medicine is not solving a problem, it's treating a symptom. So mm -hmm. you have to have significant clinical benefit to take it. Yeah, good. Are there certain foods that can trigger arthritis problems? Is there any food intake association with any of these diseases? No, it's such a bummer. Um, <laughs> diet, I get questions about diet yeah. every day. Um, and there, you know, the inflammation, anti-inflammatory diet is like all the rage. Um, the best diet really that we've been able to ever really, it's very hard to study diets, yeah. but is the Mediterranean diet in mm -hmm. terms of a diet low in sugar, low in processed food, um, and not like, you know, a lot of red meat. Um, but it's, but it's not beyond that. There's nothing better. It's not like, oh, um, keto is better than paleo is better than, you know, intermittent fasting. None of these things are really bad, but nothing's been proven to be better right. um, than just a kind of a well-balanced diet that's low in processed food and minimizing sugar. We just eat way too much sugar mm -hmm. as Americans. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, one caller has many autoimmune diseases and arthritis in her body. She's taking 17 medicines a day and her doctors assure her that each med is needed. Is it common to have so much medicine for these diseases? Another question that's kind of hard to answer without knowing the specifics of exactly what they're all for. But I mean, I would say if, if a person's problem is only one of these autoimmune diseases, that would be unusual to be on 17 medications. So I suspect there's, there's more to that story, but. Correct. Like if you, yeah, I mean, typically it does not take 17 medicines to manage rheumatoid arthritis right. or even, you know, systemic lupus. Um, certainly we like if I'm giving you steroids, then I work up your bones to make sure you don't have osteoporosis and I put you on a medicine for your bones. Right. I'm treating a side effect or a potential side effect of a therapy I'm giving you. Um, we might say, oh, you should be on a cholesterol medicine because of this inflammatory piece mm -hmm. that I mentioned where you have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease or you've got some kidney problems with your autoimmune disease and high blood pressure would be really terrible to your kidneys. So there could be other comorbidities that kind of overlie your your primary problem that kind of lead to meds getting to be a lot. And we certainly do see patients on just probably way too many medications or mm -hmm. polypharmacy, and that's a challenge. But 17 for like a specific autoimmune disease in and of itself would be unusual. Yeah. And now for the answer to tonight's Prairie Dot quiz question. True or false, physical therapy is ineffective in people with arthritis? The answer is false. Physical therapy can help in many ways. The winner of tonight's quiz is Lori Nabel from Watertown. Thank you, Lori, for participating. A book will be in the mail to you soon. For those of you following Dr. Bartholomew's kayak challenge, last week he paddled 40 miles. Watch his progress on the Prairie Dock Facebook page. We'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Ken Bartholomew. I'm a doctor from Pierce, South Dakota, and I grew up in Lemon, South Dakota. I've been a fan of the Prairie Dock since its inception. I've known uh, Rick and Joni home for about 25 years. Rick's uh, vision was to have free, non-biased uh, medical information that had no political or manufacturing spin, and it's available to anyone with a TV set or a computer uh, free of charge. We're funded completely by donations. We don't accept any advertising money. We're a 501c3 foundation, and you can go to prairie.org and donate. It is a classic presentation. The middle-aged man who develops a painful, swollen, great toe the morning after indulging in a steak dinner with a few beers. The savvy clinician will immediately identify this diagnosis, and I imagine much of the general public might recognize it as well. It's the gout. Gout is a unique type of inflammatory arthritis in which a substance called uric acid, accumulating in too high amounts in the bloodstream, forms crystals within a joint. The presence of those microscopic crystals causes the immune system to attack the foreign substance and the result is excruciating pain. I have seen many a patient limp or be wheelchaired into the exam room when this process occurs in their toe, ankle, or knee. In the most severe cases, patients might be admitted to the hospital. Gout has been recognized as a disease for many centuries, being described in ancient Egyptian texts in 2600 BC and later by the famed Greek physician Hippocrates around 400 BC. It was once known as the arthritis of the rich 
and the disease of kings, given its propensity to occur after consuming rich food and alcohol. Uric acid crystals were first visualized under a microscope in 1679 during the microscope's early years by another famous historical scientist, Antony van Leeuwenhoek. The chemical composition of what he saw, however, was not known until more than a century later. If you have had the agony of experiencing a gout attack, know that you are in excellent company. Both Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were known to suffer from gout, and historians have speculated that their shared experience led to their strong connection at the time of the American Revolution. In fact, reports have stated that Franklin, unable to walk due to a gouty attack, was carried on a chair into the Constitutional Convention by convicts. Western history and literature are full of references to the gout. Today, gouty arthritis is a fairly common disease. It tends to affect men more than women and generally occurs in middle-aged and older adults. Treatment of the acute episode is fairly simple. Often we just use anti-inflammatory medication. In patients who have recurrent problems with gout, we consider daily medicine that lowers the level of uric acid in the bloodstream altogether, which is typically highly effective. The gout of ancient times was a life-altering condition and as such found its way into many historical texts and literature. Today, well, it's just gout, and usually we can treat it very effectively. A big thank you to our guest, Dr. May, for volunteering her time to help us learn more about rheumatology and effective treatments that are available. If you would like more information about this program or to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time again get a flu shot and please wear your mask. It does help make a difference. That does it for tonight. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. A stroke may be severe, debilitating, and life-altering, but new treatments offer hope. Advancements in the treatment of strokes, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Extra, extra, read the Prairie Doc Perspectives weekly column in your local newspaper. More than 130 newspapers in the region print the newspaper column written by the Prairie Docs, covering a variety of medical and health-related topics. Ask your local paper if they print Prairie Doc Perspectives. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting.
Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, Fishback Financial Corporation, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialists, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swifttail Communications.